Mark chapter 9, our text this morning will be verses 14 through 29. I grew up in a family, a military family. We didn't move too often, but where we lived during my childhood was oftentimes in Navy housing. And I remember when I was a young lad, maybe six or seven years old, we were living in the duplexes over in Middletown. And in, in these houses, our backyards were small. We shared a shed that was, you know, had an opening on both sides. And there was a, a dividing wall in the backyard between the neighbor's house and ours. And as just an adventurous young boy, I would go outside and I would climb up that six-foot wall and I'd be able to scale over to the shed and climb up onto the top of the shed. And I did this a few times. It was easy to climb up, but then I would get stuck. And I would be on top of the shed, some eight feet off the ground. And when you're little, eight feet is a lot bigger now or then than it is now as you've grown older. But I would find myself in a very difficult situation. And then would come the cries for help. And I would start yelling for someone to help me. And it was usually something along the lines of, Dad, Dad. And after the cries for help would continue, my dad would come out in the backyard and he'd see me on top of the shed. How did this happen, son? And I would explain it was easy to climb up, but it's scary to climb down. And so he would look at me and say, well, and he'd put his arms out. And I was terrified. I remember seeing this even in my mind right now. I was terrified. And he says, jump. I will catch you. And I would say, are you sure about that? And do you believe me? And I remember wrestling as a little child. I do. But what if you don't catch me? It's going to hurt. He says, well, you'll fall on me. I will catch you. And so even as a young six, seven years old, I was sitting on the top of a roof in a place that I was uncomfortable and I was battling believing and unbelieving whether or not my father would catch me. And sure enough, the three times that I did it, he caught me every time. The fourth time, he let me know that I should never do that again. Nonetheless, even as a child there, I'm looking at my dad and he's saying, believe me, I love you, I will care for you. And so my leap of faith, battling unbelief, I jump off the roof into the hands of my father. Something I will never forget. Well, just that kind of illustration and picture here is something that we're going to see in this text this morning. It's the battle of unbelief. Follow along with me here in Mark chapter 9, verse 14. And when they, had, and when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them. And scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing with them, about with them? And some from the crowd, and someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? 
How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd had he had come running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Since the reading of the word of God. So this morning we are descending from the Mount of Transfiguration and we are entering into the Valley of Unbelief. Besides two healings of Jesus, of the the progressive healing of the blind man and Bartimaeus at the end of chapter 10, This is the only miracle that we see sandwiched in between this. And really, this is kind of the last major miracle that Jesus performs in Mark's gospel, besides the cursing of the fig tree. And brother, I want us to notice here in this passage that Mark is the one who gives the most details about this, more than Luke and more than Matthew. And the lesson that we need to see here, it's not about Jesus' power to heal. Sometimes headings in, in your Bible can kind of mislead you. No, this isn't about Jesus' power to heal. Mark has already established that through eight chapters. No, what we need to focus on here and understand the purpose in Mark's writing, it's the battle to believe. It's really the fight against unbelief that we are confronted with here today. And really, if you would look back on some of the previous sections, Mark is giving us a picture of the Christian life. Beginning in chapter 8, verse 27, there's the great confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. From this great confession comes the path of discipleship that Jesus would lay out in the next section. Following that, there's the seeing Christ in all of His glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. But we know that we don't live there day to day. And now this is the valley of unbelief. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we can recognize we fight. And there are times that we live in this battle. And it is a struggle, even among Christians. Maybe some of you here even this morning are fighting and battling unbelief. Struggling with how could a loving God dot, 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 finish the statement. Maybe you're wrestling with a crisis of faith. Maybe you're going through great trials and difficulties. And it takes all of your strength just to be here this morning. I want to assure you and comfort you with this truth. 
that whether or not maybe you are the one battling unbelief right now and the person next to you is standing firm in the faith, you are no less a follower of Christ than that person next to you. This is a struggle and this is a battle that we all will face. So let's enter into this scene here and see what Mark has for us. I want you to notice here in verses 14 through 19 what I've titled a faithless problem. This is what we are introduced to. And we have this setting here. Peter, James, and John have come down off of the mountain and they're reuniting with the other nine. Now, verses 14, 15, and 16 are just littered with pronouns, and it's kind of hard to follow who's talking to who about what. So let me just try to make it as plain and as clear as possible. Peter, James, and John come back. They reunite with the nine. They find that their companions are in an argument with the scribes. And it is due to a failed exorcism on the part of the nine. So in verse 16, Jesus comes down and he asks the scribes, Why, what are you arguing about? We see Jesus coming to the defense of his disciples. And we are given the source of the argument, the source of the conflict before us. The information does not come from the scribes, though Jesus asks them. He doesn't ask the disciples, but a man from the crowd comes forward and says, Hey, I kind of started this. I brought my son to you. He has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. And he foams and he grinds his teeth and he becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out. And they were not able. So here comes the source of the conflict right now that is, that is going on here. So this father hears that Jesus is nearby. He knows that he has a problem. He knows that he knows the condition of his son, and he says, I need to get my boy to Jesus, that my son might be healed. We should put the shoes of this father on for a minute. Even if you are a parent, mother or father. It's, as a parent, it is hard to see your children suffer. It's hard to see any children suffer, especially your own. So this man gets this word that Jesus, the miracle worker, is nearby. The testimony of Christ is spread throughout the region. And so he thinks maybe there's hope. And so he brings his son out to find that Jesus isn't there. So he settles for the second string, the nine. So the nine disciples, they see this before them while Jesus is away with Matt, um, Peter, John, and James. And they think, well... This isn't uncommon territory for us. In fact, we've, we've, we've been here before. Let me just remind you in Mark chapter 6, verse 13, Jesus commissioned them to cast out many demons, anoint, and he told them to anoint with oil many who were sick and healed them. So the nine are thinking, piece of cake, we've done this before. We're good. Much to their surprise, as they seek to cast out or exercise this demon from the boy, they are met with great opposition. To no avail are they able to do that which they had done previously. And so what happens? They're trying to do an exorcism. It's failing. The scene turns public. Crowds begin to gather around here. The scribes who opposed Jesus and his mission, oh, this is fertile territory for them. 
This is the moment they've been waiting for. They want to seize this opportunity. The disciples, the nine, are publicly humiliated and the scribes jump in and get to tell the whole crowd, see, they're all charlatans. It's all fake. This is the ammo that they need. It's never been real. And so they're arguing. This is the argument that's taking place. And I want you to notice here that this argument is fueled by unbelief. Unbelief is throughout the passage. The disciples get sucked into it. And here we see the faithless problem. The Father has explained the condition of the Son. And now Jesus speaks. Look at verse 19. And he says to them, O faithless generation. Jesus isn't talking just to the scribes or the disciples. He's talking to everybody that is there. The disciples' failure as well in this account is a result of unbelief. What was their problem? They were resting upon past success for handling the situation before them and not upon God. They were presumptuous and they were unprepared for the situation before them. And I want you to observe, how does Jesus respond? How does Jesus respond in verse 19 to this whole problem that he walks down to? These kind words, bring him to me. Bring him to me. Despite the disciples' failure, despite the argumentative and unbelief of the crowd and the scribes, Jesus is still committed to doing good. And we must recognize this even in our own lives. This isn't just a disciples' problem. As we battle and wrestle unbelief at times, despite our failures, our unbelief, our weak faith, sometimes no faith at all, Jesus is still doing good and a good work in and through us for his sake, for his glory. Remind you what Paul says to Timothy, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. So I want us to understand here that the basis for the goodness of Jesus is not based upon our measure or magnitude of faith, but upon who he is. So he walks into this scene, bring him to me. Regardless of what everyone else around him was doing, Jesus is still doing good. I want to encourage you with that. So this is the faithless problem that we see, but it moves. No, it moves to a faithful confession, verses 20 through 24. Look at them again. The, sh- the scene is now shifting. The boy is brought to Christ, and it goes from a public scene to now a dialogue between Jesus and the boy's father. This is such a compassionate passage that we see in Jesus. Verse 20. The boy falls before Christ and he begins convulsing. This is a sad scene. This young man, we don't know his age, but he's in rough shape. Very bad shape. Again, let's walk in the shoes of this father for a moment. He's been caring for his needy son for years, attending to his needs often. We don't know if there's a mother in the picture. 
There could be, there might not be. But Luke tells us that this is his only son. Think as a parent, you find out that you're going to have a child. All the excitement begins to, to set in. The day comes and as a father's perspective, it, you find out it's a boy. It's going to be a boy. Father has big dreams for their, his son, his firstborn son. And as his son starts to grow up, in this case, he gets plagued with a demon, quite possibly a form of epilepsy. And the father's prayer shifts from, God, may he grow up to be a strong and courageous man, to, Lord, May he not die today. He tells us again, we find out in verses 21 and 22, that the child has been like this for years. Oh, can you just hear the cry of the father? Jesus, this boy is helpless. He's been away since childhood. The demon, verse 22, it has often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But my son, my boy is resilient. Although the demon has sought to destroy my boy, it has not prevailed. Despite all the setbacks and all the obstacles that my son has faced, Jesus, he hasn't given up or given in. And then comes the cry of the Father's heart here. But if you can do anything, he doesn't say have compassion on him. He says have compassion on us. Because the boy's suffering is the Father's suffering. And he asked Jesus to show compassion on them. Compassion on us. Help us. You just hear it. You say, please. There's desperation in this father. But it's interesting to note, verse 23, Jesus corrects him first. He says, if you can, it's almost as though he's saying, wait a minute, let me just fix your thinking here for a moment. You said, Jesus, if you can. It's not a matter of Jesus' ability that's in question here. No, that's not what, and Jesus wants him to know this. What do you mean if I can? He's saying, do you believe? The issue's not on my side. That's what Jesus is saying. Do you believe? Oh, this man is discouraged. He tells him all things are possible for one who believes. But this brother is no doubt discouraged. He hears that Jesus is around. He's making his last ditch effort most likely to hopefully this might be the day of healing for my son. That the suffering might be over. To come out and find that Jesus isn't there. He's up on the mountain. So he turns, he says, well, what about his disciples? Maybe they'll help. And they fail. And he's at a low point here, no doubt. He's hurting. He's battling unbelief. I want us to understand here that we are much more like this man in our lives than maybe we even think. We're all going to face circumstances in our life that will put faith to the test. 
we should not. And we must try and we must seek to diligently not allow the circumstances of life to fuel our faith. Faith needs to ride on top of the waves of circumstances so that we don't get sucked down into the depths. Spurgeon said this, quote, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. And this was all the correction that this father needed. Notice his faithful confession in verse 24. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. Years of struggle, sleepless nights, crying over the condition of his only son, wondering if he will ever get better. Maybe he had even come to the point, this is the way of life. I must accept this circumstance. He hears about the miracle worker to be disappointed by the disciples, and now he is standing before God himself and cries out, I believe, help my unbelief. It's as though he's saying, Jesus, I do believe. I am here. Oh, but Jesus, my faith is weak. Unbelief lies around the corner of my heart. And he cries out once again, help my unbelief. Oh, he recognizes the battle in his own heart. And I think if we're, again, being honest... This needs to be our prayer. I believe, help my unbelief. This is an honest statement. It is authentic. It's raw. It's us. Let me, let me break down th- this statement here again. Look again at verse 24. And I want you to notice what he says here. First, The first part of his statement, I believe. Well, what does this mean? This is what we know. This is the things that we know to be true. This is doctrine. This is theology. This is the truth of who God is. So when we think about, I believe, this is what I know. How does he finish the statement? My unbelief. Oftentimes, this is what we feel. And so what we have here is the things that we know sometimes do not line up with how we feel. What's in between these two words, these two statements? Help. The word is help. Because there are often times we live in this disconnection between what I know and how I feel. And what do I need in that time? Help. I need help. Only those who need only those who know they need it ask for it. Living with small children. Help is a word that we hear often. They don't even sometimes know. Last night, from three to four, all we heard was mama, mama, mama. And then once mama wouldn't move, it was daddy, daddy, daddy. I go in to find out what the problem is. And the pacifier is right here and not in the mouth. That is help, help, help. The thing I love about children is they're not ashamed to ask for it when they need it. Sometimes as we get older, we think we got it. 
it's harder to ask for help. I want to encourage you. I want to exhort you. If you are somebody that needs help, you need to ask. Seek Christ. Seek the Lord. Preach the gospel to yourself. But don't do it outside of the covenant community. Do not do it in isolation because isolation will breed further unbelief and it will put you into a dark place. Sometimes we need to get real. Maybe it starts with getting real with ourselves, to the Lord and even to others. I need help. I'm not okay today. The waves of life, I'm not riding on top of the circumstances. They're causing me to drown in unbelief to the point where I'm questioning everything. Spurgeon also said once, doubt the man who's never doubted. Great. There's no better place to be if you feel that way than in the Lord's house on the Lord's day with the Lord's people. We know what the Bible says, so we know what is true, but we have this disconnect. So we're battling fears, anxiety, what-ifs, questions that we don't even have answers to, but we want them. Let me encourage you, you are in the right place at the right time with the right people. So we should own this man's confession here as our own. We cry out, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And what was the result? Verses 25 through 27. Jesus acts according to who Jesus is. Jesus rebukes the spirit, permanently sets his protective care upon the boy, banishing the demon for life. That little detail, I love it. I command you to come out, verse 25, and never enter him again. You have been permanently banished from this boy. The boy is then lifted to life by Jesus to follow him all the days that he has. So in summary, what do we see here? It's a merciful reward. Jesus saves. He responds to the faithful confession of the Father. Jesus delights in faith and he acts upon the faithful prayer. Jesus rewards those who faithfully seek him. And again, as I stated earlier, let me just remind you, it's not the magnitude or the measure of the faith in the Father, but it's the object of his faith. He is trusting in Christ. He is trusting in the power of Christ. He's trusting in the goodness of Jesus. He's trusting in the ability that Christ will do good. Remind you of the words of Christ. He says, For truly I say to you, if you have faith the grain, like the grain of a mustard seed, you will be able to say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. How then should we pray? Expectantly fervently believing that God is going to do great things and then don't be surprised when it happens oh how often I've prayed and I've meant what I'm praying for and I'm blown away that it actually happens 
there's my I believe, help my unbelief. Maybe some of you can relate to that as well. The father, this boy's father, believed. He requested a miracle in faith despite his battle with unbelief. And Jesus gave him a merciful reward. He healed that boy totally. And throughout Mark's gospel, the healing of Jesus physically shows the healing, the spiritual healing, the regeneration, the new life that Jesus gives. Jesus touches what is unwell and makes it well. Jesus takes what is unclean and makes it clean. Jesus takes dead sinners and raises them to life. So, after the scene dies down, the crowd had seen this work. He silences the scribes. You don't hear them even talking anymore. A great apologetic there for Christ. He then graciously takes his disciples aside and teaches them a valuable lesson. In verses 28 and 29. From the merciful reward to the boy to the gracious lesson to his disciples. Jesus chides the... the uh, uh, after he had chided the, the, the generation for their unbelief, he privately takes his disciples aside and teaches them. Now remember, they were defeated and publicly humiliated in front of everybody. Sometimes that's not a bad thing. Sometimes a little humility goes a long way in learning. So they ask Christ in verse 28, basically, why did we fail? Why couldn't we do this? And his answer, only by prayer. Well, wait, that the disciples just, if they just prayed before they tried, it would have worked? That's not what he's saying here. He's telling them, you were not prepared. Prayerlessness and unbelief are two sides of the same coin. They fuel each other. Prayerlessness and unbelief is like running on a hamster wheel, getting frustrated why you're not getting anywhere. You're not making any progress. Now, I'm not saying that if we pray, all unbelief goes away. I wish it was that simple. But belief and prayer are also two sides of the same coin. They go hand in hand. Action without prayer is faithless. Prayer without action is foolish. But again, we see the heart of Christ. He is gracious with the unbelief of his disciples. He doesn't say, I'm just going to reduce it down to three. You nine are terrible. No. He's gracious with their unbelief. He suffers long for them and with them. So instead of pushing them away, he brings them in closer. Dear Christian, if you are battling unbelief, even this morning, in any form, prayerlessness, trying to get ahead of God, or lagging too far behind, understand that God desires that you, could, you would come close to him. He invites you, draw near to him. Again, we all battle unbelief in many areas. We need to cry out like this, Father, I believe, help my unbelief. And then take this lesson that we see here from Christ to his disciples. Take it to heart. Draw near to him. Independent in dependent prayer. Sometimes we try to put those words together. It gets a little 
tricky here. It's the closeness to Jesus that calms our fears, that relieves our anxieties, that strengthens our faith, that dispels unbelief. When my children are close to me, wrapped in my arms, they're not battling unbelief. They know they're safe. They're cared for. They're valued. They're protected. And as a child would draw near to the loving embrace of their parents, of their father, so we too, as the children of God, draw near to him to receive his loving embrace. Even as we battle unbelief, as that song goes, he will hold me fast. So we trust in this. We are strengthened by that. So what what sense should we make of this entire passage? What are some areas that we can focus on concerning our own battles against unbelief? Let me give you three to think about. That is oftentimes present in believers, the unbelief of believers. First, it's low views of the love of God. It's not that we think too much on the love of God. Or think too high of God's love. The battle oftentimes is that we don't think of it enough. So we battle unbelief with questions like, does God actually love me? How could these things be happening to me if God is such a loving God? If God loved me, how come I don't have a spouse? Why would these things been allowed to happen to me in my past if God truly loved me? I was meeting with a brother uh, some weeks ago, and he was just spilling out all of these struggles that he's facing. And it was just, and he was like, trial after trial and difficulty and his health issues. And I just listened. He says, what, what should I think about this? I said, God really loves you. Kind of looked at me. I said, because it's through the trials that God is making you something that you wouldn't be without Him. And so understand this. If we are facing difficulties, God loves you. There is nothing that has come your way that has not come from the loving and sovereign hand of God. It's just usually when we get through the trials and we look back is when we tend to say thank you. If you are going through a hard time, God loves you. Fix your eyes on Christ as you might be battling with some of these questions. Behold Christ dying on a cross. And as you look to Him, that's God's exclamation point on the sentence that says, I love you. We don't have all the answers for why things happen. Maybe we never will. Why some live and some die. But if you are wondering if God loves you, look to His Son. Again, Spurgeon said once he was with the eye of faith, as only Spurgeon can say, as he was beholding Christ dying on the cross, it caused him to ask the question in that moment, as the son is suffering under the anguish 
and wrath of the Father, Spurgeon asks, does he love me more than him? In that moment, it would appear that way as Christ suffers. That the love of the Father is shown to us. I believe, help my unbelief. Second area to focus on, low views of God's work in the world. Watch the news and you will be afraid. Think about the war in, with Russia and Ukraine, and, and it is terrible. Scroll through social media and you will be discouraged. Remember Christ's promise. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We got to witness even today, communicant members. Oh, we praise God that his promises will not fail. He's building his church. Saving sinners, sanctifying saints. Brothers and sisters, there are more true believers on earth right now than there has ever been in the history of Christianity. He's building his church. Therefore, every Christian should be an optimist. Live hopeful. Live hopeful for the future and contribute to building that healthy church for the generations after you. We are just a blip on the timeline of church history. Will we be found faithful? God is doing a work and he invites us to be a part of that. Here's a third area, of final area of struggling and battling with unbelief is low views of the closeness of God. Unbelief can cause us to be functional deists a distant God. We know he's there. He's the creator. But we forget that God is imminent. That he is involved in the affairs of life. Yes, he is both transcendent and imminent. A God that cares for you personally. I was reflecting the other day in a house full of chaos and lots of voices going at once. I can only hear really one person talking to me at a time. And when they all are competing to talk to me at the same time, I gotta I gotta go somewhere. I gotta I gotta get away from this for a minute. And like, I need quiet. And this morning, across the entire globe, how many countless people lifting up their prayers of praise to God, and he hears them all individually. He is both transcendent and he is imminent and his spirit dwells within us God is close and he cares for you he holds you in the palm of his hand be encouraged now remember as we conclude despite the disciples unbelief and this father's struggles here Jesus remains merciful and gracious and he invites you, me, us, to draw near in faith. Earlier in the fall, I was doing some work around the yard. I was in the garage, just kind of puttering around. And I start to hear this yell far in the backyard. And it's a cry for help. And it's the words, Dad, Dad. Dad. 
So I respond to the call. I go out and I see my six-year-old boy has climbed up to a tree, into a tree, at a height that he could not climb down from, and he was scared. And immediately I thought about me on top of that shed. I reached my arms out. I said, jump. Are you going to catch me? Yes, I'm going to catch you. And he was battling that unbelief too. As he jumps, he lands in his father's arms and he knows that he's safe. Christian, this is our God. This is our Christ. Let us find our rest in him. Father, we thank you for your word. We praise you that you have invited us, sinners, poor and needy, to find our rest in you. We thank you that despite our battles and our fickleness and our unbelief, you are faithful. Oh Lord, may we, our faith be strengthened as we persevere through the trials of this life. Lord, may we lean in and lean on your means of grace, the people that you've given us, that you've called us to be a part of, your community, your church. As we are, must remember, Lord, we are not pilgrims on this path alone, but we are journeying through this life together. God, we believe. Help our unbelief. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.